Pray with me. Father, as we turn to your word, would you please open our hearts and minds to receive, uh, that we might be changed to be more like Christ, that we might live kingdom-first lives. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Please be seated. So as Trey mentioned the Christmas thing, we're like less than two months from Christmas. And there are a number of things that disturb me about that. (laughs) One of them is that it is 73 degrees outside right now. And just to give you some kind of frame of reference for that, okay? Historically, the average high, not 10 o'clock in the morning, the average high in October is 76.5 degrees. In the last two weeks, our average high has been 84.9. I mean, that is a significant difference. The average, um, sorry, wrong thing there. The average temperature for the month, highs and lows combined, in 2016 of October, is the highest it's ever been on record. The next closest, 1963 since we've had this kind of average temperature through a month. We also have the highest average lows on record for a month of October. This is ridiculous weather. I'm waiting for like that cool, and and the thing about, I kept looking at the weather app for like the last six weeks, and and you do the 15-day forecast, and the last five days, they were always in the 70s until you got to them. And it just kept doing that over and over and over again. And and the thing about this weather and why I bring it up is weather impacts everything. I mean, think about how pervasive it is. It impacts how you dress. You know, I met with somebody the other day for coffee, and we're both wearing shorts. And he was like, this is ridiculous. Like, we should be at least in pants at this point. But it affects how you dress. It affects your energy bills. I mean, normally in October, like, our windows are open, and it's just a natural thing. We still have our, we're still using our AC. I mean, it affects, and, and it affects something else that was really traumatic. Right? You may think that we're just celebrating Halloween or something. We're not. Um, we carved our jack-o'-lanterns two days ago, or a day and a half ago, or something. And I want to show you what they look like. And, and they didn't look like this normally. But this is the one that I carved, and this one reminds me of a 90-year-old man. (laughs) My pumpkin did not look like that when I carved it, but it's been in this heat. And and then, then there's my daughter's, and if you think mine looks bad, I, I feel so bad about this pumpkin. She worked really, really hard to do this little cat. Um, And she did a great job. And this is what it looks like now. (laughs) And this is after we used something to hold it up. (laughs) Like we made it a merry-go-round cat, and it just fell completely apart. 
This is the weather. The weather affects everything. It's, it's different than if you get up one morning and you're out of your favorite cereal. You may be irritated, but it doesn't change the rest of your day. You grab something else and you eat it. There's all kinds of things that their impact is, is minuscule compared to the weather. It impacts everything, like including my attitude. I've been a little grumpy. My wife's shaking her head. I mean, it, it just... It, it affects everything. For the next three weeks, we're going to talk about a kingdom-first spirituality. And the concepts that we're going to deal with, they are not meant to be like a single part or a single sliver of life. They are meant to be foundations for everything else. In the way that the, the, the heat affects the use of AC or when you walk outside or how you dress or your pumpkins. This is meant to be that foundation piece that bleeds into every part of who we are. A kingdom first spirituality. And, and what we're looking at and the, way, the reason we're doing this is because in this section in Chronicles, Yahweh has come down to reign over his people his kingdom is right there. And the things that we're seeing happening are the things that are significant in the kingdom. And so we're going to look at first today a spirituality of humility. And I want to make this argument. Humility is absolutely foundational, fundamental. You cannot live a kingdom-first life without it. And it pervades everything. Our decisions, our relationships, everything. Open your Bible, if you would, to Second Chronicles, chapter 6. Second Chronicles, chapter 6. We're going to read quite a bit of scripture this morning. 2 Chronicles 6, starting in verse 1, and here is the first thing about a spirituality of humility. We all have mixed motives. We all have mixed motivations in the things that we do. Your motivations, as long as you have a fallen nature, are never going to be 100% pure. A spirituality of humility will embrace the mixed motives, recognize it, admit it, and then choose to follow the right motive. Second Chronicles chapter 6, verse 1. Then Solomon said, Yahweh has said that he would dwell in thick darkness, but I have built you an exalted house, a place for you to dwell forever. Then the king turned around and blessed all the assembly of Israel, while all the assembly of Israel stood, and he said, Blessed be Yahweh, the God of Israel, who with his hand has fulfilled what he has promised with his mouth to David by my father, saying, and he's about to quote some of the things we've been studying the last few weeks, 
Remember, David wanted to build the house. God said no, but he said, I'm going to have your son do it, and I'm going to put someone from your line on the throne. It's an eternal throne. Saying, since the day I brought my people up out of the land of Egypt, I chose no city out of all the tribes of Israel in which to build a house that my name might be, over, might be there. And I chose no man as prince over my people Israel. And we've looked at both of those things. Remember, that's exactly what he says to David. Did I ever ask anybody to build me a house? Why do you think you get to build me a house? I haven't needed this. And then the week before that, we talked about the first king, where they come to Samuel and they say, we want a king. And God says, they're not rejecting you, Samuel. They're rejecting me. Verse 6, but I have chosen Jerusalem that my name may be there. And I have chosen David to be over my people Israel. Verse 7, now it was in the heart of David my father to build a house for the name of Yahweh, the king of Israel. But Yahweh said to David my father, whereas it is in your heart to build a house for my name. Now, if you were here two weeks ago, this may sound really funny. You did well that it was in your heart. Now, that's not the response I remember from Yahweh. When this is first recorded, I remember Yahweh basically sitting David down and going, you need to remember who's done what here. You want to build me a house? I'm the one that took you out of the pasture. I'm the one that built you up. I'm the one that has rescued my people, not you. Is God going a little senile like my pumpkin? I mean, has he forgotten something here? What is happening? Keep going with me. Nevertheless, it is not you who shall build the house, but your son who shall be born to you shall build the house for my name. Now Yahweh has fulfilled his promise that he made, for I have risen in the place of David my father and sit on the throne of Israel as Yahweh promised. And I have built the house for the name of Yahweh, the God of Israel. And there I have set the ark in which the covenant of Yahweh that he made with his people. What is happening? So there's actually three references to this same scene. There's the passage we looked at in 2 Samuel, there's this passage in 2 Chronicles 6, and there's a passage in 2 Chronicles 22. And here's the picture that you get. In Samuel, it's, David, you should not be doing this. What do you think you're doing? Get back in your place. You think you're so great, I am the great one. In this passage, it's, it was well that it was in your heart, David. And then in 2 Chronicles 22, it's, David, you can't build the temple because you have blood on your hands. Which one's right? Which one of these things is true? All of them. Every one of them is true. There are mixed motivations in David. He is not 100% arrogant. In fact, in a moment, I want to show you his response. We didn't read it, but I want to show you David's response when the Lord lays into him. Because David will confess his problem. I mean, he will acknowledge what he's done wrong. But David had, yes, he had this thing in mind where he felt he was great enough to do this. He minimized God's greatness. At the same time, there was also some motivations in David that were good. In Deuteronomy chapter 12, David actually, I mean, sorry, Yahweh told Moses, 
I will choose a place to put my name. David knows that. David's heart in some ways was right. As David looked at what he had, and he like, God's got to have something better than what he has here. I mean, if I'm going to have a palace, should God be stuck in a tent? There was some right motivation, some right heart in that. And at the same time, even if that had been David's only motivation, even if he had not had any pride, any assumption going on, he still couldn't have built it. Because there was this whole other thing where God says, I don't want a man of bloodshed building my temple. So your son's going to do it. Every one of those things is true. David is a man with mixed motivations. How are your motivations? Do you recognize in yourself those times where you step up to do something good, and yet if you're being honest with yourself, you're looking for some recognition too? That time where you go to help somebody, but you're also hoping they're gonna help you in return later on? You're setting something up. Where are your mixed motivations? Church, we are a fallen people still. We have been renewed by the Spirit of God, but we're still a fallen people until the resurrection, which means our motivations are going to be mixed. The question is, how do you deal with that? All right, now, let me show you David's response when Yahweh confronts him. And this is the passage that we were looking at. Hey, this is back in 2 Samuel. Yahweh has laid into David. He has made sure that David understands it's not your greatness, it's mine. It's not what you've accomplished, it's what I have accomplished. Here's David's response. Then King David went in and he sat before Yahweh and said, who am I, O Lord God? What is my house that you have brought me even this far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. This was not huge for you. Okay. Here is David going, you are right. Like I, I overstepped here. I lost perspective of what you've done and what I've done, what you are pot, what you can accomplish and what I can accomplish. But he's admitting it. He's owning it. He's not running from it. He's not scared of it. He's owning what he's done. Will you own your mixed motivations? Will you allow yourself to be corrected, to be confronted? Will you allow God or your spouse or a friend or a sermon Maybe just reading something in scripture. Will you be open enough and allow it to correct you? To let you see something where you are acting in a way that is not holy. It is not pure. And then own that. Admit it. Confess it. And make the change in your life. couple of things about this. If you and I will not recognize our own mixed motivations, if we will not be humble enough to see 
that we don't have it all together. We aren't perfect. We aren't doing this all for just altruistic reasons. Then we're going to have a very hard time having sympathy and compassion for others. Because I guarantee you this, at least about me, maybe you're different. I have no problem recognizing mixed motives in everybody else. I can call you on it. I can see those things you actually are doing. But if I think that I don't have them, I'm going to treat you pretty poorly with yours because I think I'm so good and you're not. We've got to be able to recognize this in ourselves for the sake of others and for our own sake. Could you imagine if David's response instead to God of going, wow, who am I? I cannot believe that I even thought these things. Could you imagine instead of his response was, yeah, I don't know that I agree with that. Like, I have good motives, God. You're missing the point. I, I just know. I mean, that, that's not what I was thinking. I was thinking this. And you cannot deal with somebody who only has excuses. There's no way forward. There's always an answer. There's always a reason why I did this or that or I'm like this or I'm like that. You can't change if you always have a rationale or an excuse for your mixed motivations. Will you have the humility to recognize those mixed motivations in yourself for your sake, for others' sake, so that you can move forward? And I think what David does is exactly what we're called to. David messed up. Okay? He's got the motivation of his pride and he's got the motivation of his heart and they're good and bad and they're both there. And when God calls him on it, David goes, you're right, I, I, I messed this up, I am sorry. But, and this is really important, he moves forward in this motivation. He moves forward in that heart, love, and for the rest of Samuel, if you go into Chronicles, you'll see this too. David is all about the temple being built and Solomon doing it, and it's for God. He lives into the correction. Will you have the humility to be corrected and to live into it? This past week, on Thursday morning, my five-year-old son got an award at school. Now, if you know my son and you've had a chance to meet him, you will know he is really, really, really shy. And, and I can say that because other than my wife and maybe Grandma Kathy, he's never said hi to anyone in this room. Like, if you try to say hi to him, he just grabs his lip and looks down, and he twists. And we'll be standing there, come on, buddy, give him a high five. You know, kids love high fives. No, my son does this. Even if you've been standing there for five minutes talking to us, he still won't look at you. He is really, really shy. And so my wife and I show up for him to get this award. And you know what happens to get awards, right? You have to go up in front of everybody. So we're watching him walk into the room. This is just walking in. They're going to be all gathered together. And there's only like 50 kids in the whole school. But he's walking in. And even walking into the room, he's doing this, head down. And he sits down. And he just looks at the ground the whole time. And my wife and I are sitting behind him, not far, and we're just going, this is not going to work. 
Like, he's got to get up and walk in front of all these people and go up front to get this award. And we're, now, if we were good parents, we'd try and help. <laughs> we just wanted to see how it played out. We were having a great time watching this go on. And so they get to the end of their time, and they start calling the kids up one at a time to come forward. And he's the fifth one. And they call his name. And he doesn't even move. He doesn't even budge. Keenan Bowman just sits there. Head goes a little further down. And so his teacher gets up. Come on, buddy. It's okay. Come forward. You can do this. It's all right. And he kind of looks at her. And he has his buddy next to him who's a fifth grader. And he's like, okay, come on, buddy. We can do this. So they're all helping my child up. You know, and they're walking. And we're thinking, he's going to need like some kind of I don't know, help afterwards. He's going to have to see somebody. This is going to be so traumatic. And he's going forward, and he gets up there, and on the way up there, I'm not kidding you, he went to a double lip. <laughs> that bad. And he gets up front, and then they give him the award. You know what the award was for? I'm not making this up. Courage. <laughs> he got an award for courage. And, and Aaron and I knew this ahead of time, and we're thinking, they had to make a mistake. Like, there's got to be some other kid they meant, and like, he was supposed to get some different award. And then they read the award, and I brought it with me so I could read it to you. This is the award that he won. To Keenan Bowman for, he was caught demonstrating courage. By taking risks in his learning and trying things he thought he couldn't do. His courage has helped him become a reader. They explained something about the award. It was not about being fearless. It was not about, like, you know, battling bad guys coming to your school. Um, that, that wasn't the, 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 the award. It was about he was fearful. He did have that fear. But he also wanted to learn how to read. And he overcame the fear, at least in that area. And he pushed himself to do something that he didn't think he could do. He was mixed in what he wanted. He was afraid, but he also wanted to read. And he ultimately chose this over the other. That's what we're called to. We're not called to have pure motivations. That's never going to happen. Can I just tell you something? If you're waiting to serve God until all your motivations are pure, just give up. Like, don't worry about it. You might as well just choose a different religion or something. Hey, you're never going to be able to do that. You're never going to have pure motivations this side of eternity. It's not that. What we're called is to recognize the mixed motivations, be corrected, and live into the one that is right, the one that is pure, the one that is following God but we need the humility to do it. A spirituality of humility recognizes our mixed motivations. It will be corrected. It has enough humility to be corrected and then to live into that which is right. The second, a spirituality of humility recognizes that the real comparison is never between you and somebody else. It's between you and God. However highly you think of yourself, some of that is because you compare yourself to other people. But the real comparison is not between you and others. 
We're all a bunch of fallen people who screw up far too often. It's between you and God. If you want to know what holiness looks like, it's him. Look back at, chapter, uh, at verse 12. Then Solomon stood before the altar of Yahweh in the presence of all the assembly, of all of Israel, and he spread out his hands. Solomon had made bronze platform five cubits long, five cubits wide, three cubits high, and had set it in the court, and he stood on it. Then he knelt on his knees in the presence of all the assembly of Israel, and he spread out his hands toward heaven, and he said, O Yahweh, God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven or on earth, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart, who have kept, who have kept with your servant David, my father, what you declared to him. You spoke with your mouth, and with your hand you have fulfilled it to this day. Now, therefore, O Yahweh, God of Israel, Keep for your servant David, my father, what you have promised him, saying, You shall not lack a man to sit before me on the throne of Israel, if only your sons pay close attention to their way, to walk in the law, to walk in my law as you have walked before me. Now, therefore, O Yahweh, God of Israel, let your word be confirmed, which you have spoken to your servant David. Little side note at the heart of prayer is humility. If you don't pray, it's probably partly because you don't think you really need anything from God. Otherwise, you would seek him. If you don't pray, it's at least partly because you're not recognizing the holiness and awesomeness of God and not giving him the glory he deserves. But prayer at its heart is humility. It's acknowledging the greater than what we are. It's Solomon right here going down on his knees and saying, O Yahweh, God of Israel. But he's not done. Verse 18. But will God indeed dwell with man on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. There's a recognition in Solomon here. I know you're going to dwell in this place, but you are so much bigger than this temple. I mean, this can't hold you. You are so vast, the highest of heavens cannot hold you. How big is the God that you worship? Because that will say something about your humility. You see, what we are looking at is not me and this person here. Like, oh yeah, I've done a little bit more in this area than Carol's done. And I'm, I'm going to ignore the part where Carol's done more than I've done. And I'm just going to move on, and it makes me feel better about myself. However, what happens when I compare myself to God? How often will I win that comparison? Go ahead and say it. You can't win that. But that's what we're at. It's him. It's not the people around us. And when you do that, all of a sudden, you should start to see the ways in which you fall short. You should begin to see your sin for what it is. And can I tell you from verse 22 all the way through verse 38, basically, 39, he's going to talk about sin and confession of sin. He's gonna say things like, Lord, when we are getting defeated in battle because we've sinned against you and we confess, Will you forgive us? 
Lord, when our crops aren't growing because we have sinned, will you forgive us when we pray to you? It's all recognizing how often they're going to fall short because it's God that they're looking at and they just never measure up. There was a young American piano student who went to a museum in Mon where there was a Beethoven piano. He'd actually played and composed some on the piano. And when she saw it, she asked the guard, can I just go play something? And the guard, of course, said, no, you're ridiculous. Like, you can't go play on Beethoven's piano. Well, she was also very, very wealthy. Or family was wealthy, she really wasn't. And so she bribed the guard. And the guard went ahead and gave her just a moment to go tinker on the piano. And she played a little piece of Beethoven, just part of it. And then she walked past the guard and she said, I bet all of the great pianists, when they see this, just really want to go play on that piano. And the guard said, actually, Padawerski, who was a Polish pianist, one time was here and he said, I don't deserve to even touch the piano that Beethoven played on. See, she was putting herself in the category of all the great pianists. He, the great pianist, recognized somebody that he didn't even deserve to touch the keys he had played the piano with. Once you stop looking at everybody else and going, I'm not too bad, and you start looking at God, you will start recognizing this. Verse 36, if they sin against you, this is Solomon's prayer, for there is no one who does not sin, just let that sink in, there is no one who does not sin, and you are angry with them and give them to an enemy so that they are carried away captive to the land far or near, yet if they turn their heart in the land to which they've been carried captive, and they repent and plead with you in the land of their captivity, saying, we have sinned and have acted perversely and wickedly. If they repent with all their mind and with all their heart in the land of their captivity to which they were carried captive, and they pray toward this land which you have given to their fathers, the city that you have chosen, the house that I have built for your name, then hear from heaven your dwelling place their prayer and their pleas and maintain their cause and forgive your people who have sinned against you. If you want a spirituality of humility, it is a daily repentance. It is a daily recognizing that this is the path that God has you on. And we walk it, and every day we start doing this. However, this is what I think happens with sin. Would you come up? I want to give you an illustration for the way I think we view sin in our lives and the way in which it keeps us from living fully into what God has for us. So, 
here's the thing about a stringed instrument. Um, and I'm going to stand near you so you can get this on the recording. Um, the thing about a stringed instrument is as you play it, what happens? It goes out of tune, right? I mean, you've seen, even if you've never played one, you know what happens. They tune all the time. It goes out of tune, so you have to keep tuning it. You can't just keep playing forever because it goes out of tune. All right, so keep that in mind. I want you to listen to something played out of tune. Okay, now, here's what you should have heard. That was pretty good, except, is there something off? Play it, not, play it in tune, just like that. Play the same thing in tune. Is my violin tuned right? No. <laughs> They're violin tuned right. <laughs> really, in tune? It really in tune. Now, do you hear the difference between the two pieces? Was it hard to hear the difference in the first one? Shake your head this way or this way. Okay, so what's interesting is we're getting mixed reactions in the crowd right now. Some of you are saying, I, I didn't quite hear it out of tune. Some of you are saying, yes, I did hear it out of tune. But everybody heard the last one, right? And you went, that, that's really pretty. That is totally in tune. Here's the problem with our sin. Some of it, it's really, really obvious. Um, can you just play like two notes together that would be way out of tune? Okay, everybody hear that? Sounds like Halloween, right? Totally out of tune. See, we get when we're on the path and we do this. I mean, everybody gets that. And you're like, oh, I screwed up. I really screwed up. The problem is, that's not the majority of our sin. The majority of our sin is what she played the first time, which is, it's off, but only if I'm really listening. Like, I screwed up. I got out, but not, it wasn't that bad, right? I mean, it was only kind of bad. I, I, maybe I'm off, but what happens with that? Down the way, all of a sudden you go, I'm way off now. When we live out our Christian life, we get out of tune every single day. Every single day we are moving off the path that God has for us. And it may be subtle. It may be just a little bit. But I'm going to be honest. Okay, I'm going to raise my hand. You do not have to raise yours. I am not paying enough attention to the subtleties. And you know what I'm missing out on? One more time, play it in tune, completely in tune. That's what I'm missing out on. Because when you are in right relationship with God, 
when you are walking the path that he has for you, your life is going to sing in a way that it cannot sing when there is still sin present in your life. Even the subtle things. And so this whole prayer that Solomon has, it's all about, God, when we get off, but with our minds and our hearts, we acknowledge that and we cry out to you and we say, Lord, forgive us. Bring us back. And he longs to do that. He longs to have his people in that kind of relationship with him, walking with him on his path. But it takes some humility for that to happen. Thank you. A spirituality of humility. One, it recognizes our mixed motivations. It recognizes that we do these good things at times, but there's some bad stuff in us while we're doing it. And, and, and we get corrected, and then we move into the good. And two, it recognizes that my comparison is never with other people. I may win some of those, but I'm not gonna win it with God. And if I wanna be in tune with God, every day that I live, I'm taking little subtle turns away from what he's calling me to. But I'm acknowledging that, I'm repenting of it, and I'm trying to move back and say, Lord, I want to follow you. And I'm not afraid of my screw-ups. That's that humility. And by the way, if you think at all that I'm overdoing this humble thing as being like foundational for spirituality, just at some point take a look at the life of Jesus. Read Philippians 2, 5 to 11, where it describes him giving everything up to come down for us. Look at his birth in a manger. Look at the way he says, I didn't come to be served, but to serve. Look at the people that he hangs out with. He epitomized humility. He got down on his knees before the, the, the people he created, and he washed their grimy, grungy feet. He epitomized humility. It's what we're called to because as we embrace humility, we see ourselves differently, we see God differently, we see people differently, we see circumstances differently. We must have that humility. The weather cannot be changed by you. If it could, it would be snowing right now, because that's what my daughter wants, desperately. But we can't, we can't change the weather. You can't change the weather, right? It's beyond you. You can walk outside and go, please cool down, because I've done it. It doesn't work. You can, with God's help, change your humility and your pride. With the help of the Holy Spirit, you can change that. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for your son. Thank you for a humility that is so profound that we could spend the rest of our lives trying to grasp what he did. But Lord, please, for each person here, help us to embrace humility and to live out of it. 
as a starting point for a kingdom-first life. In Jesus' name, we ask it. Amen.